Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The Trump administration, with a complicit Senate, completely overhauled the United States judiciary, filling it with unqualified and far-right extremist activist judges all the way to the Supreme Court. To discuss the impact of these appointments and what can be done about them, I've invited Tamara Brummer to the show. Tamara is the Senior Advisor for Engagement and Outreach for Demand Justice. A group of lawmakers plans to introduce legislation today that would expand the court from nine justices to 13. One of the bill's sponsors, New York Congressman Mundare Jones, tweeted Republicans packed the court when Mitch McConnell held Merrick Garland's seat open nearly a year before an election, then confirmed Amy Coney Barrett's days before the next election. Disarming the court's radical right-wing majority would correct this injustice. Just last week, the president signed an executive order creating... um, the Bipartisan Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, a bipartisan group of over 30 constitutional and legal experts who are examining a range of questions about proposed potential reforms to the Supreme Court. We are here uh, as a coalition uh, beginning this effort uh, to ensure that we restore justice uh, to the Supreme Court. Hi, I'm Tamara Brummer, and I'm fighting to add four seats to the Supreme Court. Sorry, not sorry. Tamara, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Will you talk to us about what the judiciary is supposed to look like? Mm, What it's supposed to look like. One would argue that the judiciary should be reflective of the American people and the people who make our country go. But if you've ever looked at our federal judiciary, in particular, maybe our Supreme Court might be a better example for folks listening. Our Supreme Court doesn't really reflect visually what America looks like. It's overwhelmingly white, male, and older. No shade to older folks or white men or old men, but they are an overwhelming majority of our federal judiciary. And so when we think about who understands and interprets the law of the lands and our constitution and the rules, you're only getting a very limited purview of that interpretation, right? Or what the constitution means for all of us. And so our judiciary should look like you and me. It should look like women and women of color, people of color. But in 113 justices, for instance, of the Supreme Court, there's never been a Black woman. There's never been an Asian person. There's never been a Native American. So we've got a lot of work to do to get our courts to actually look like America. And why is that important? I think it's very important because if you think about our society and our ecosystem, you want to make sure, for instance, if you're a defendant going in front of a judge, what would it mean for you? Alyssa, if you went in front of a judge and your judge had never, I don't know, argued in front of a court before, or if your judge only had experience defending corporations and oil companies, or if your judge in their lawyer life, their past life had only represented the federal government, but never just regular people. 
So making sure that we have a diverse judiciary, not just in terms of demographics, which is very important, right? But also in professional experience means that we have a more deeper, robust understanding of how our laws and our country work and operate. And I think that we've seen this recently in some of the hearings that we've had around already people going in front of the Senate Judiciary around lower court nominations. White men are not asked any questions about <laughs> does being white or a man influence you being a judge? However, when it's Black women who've been asked, they've always been asked, will your race and your gender influence your decision as a judge? Those women have said no, and I believe them. But I think what we're really getting to is that you have a lived experience in the body that you have in this world and how you walk through the world. And that we want to have people who have had different lived experiences walking through this world, being able to interpret our laws and be able to give us equal justice under the law for all of us is really important when we are dealing with our federal judiciary. But right now, it's really tough, I think, for folks to get a fair shot and for us as Americans to get a fair shot for our democracy, to get a fair shot in the current structure of our government. Can you just break down for my listeners what happened during the Trump years? Oh, absolutely. I like to talk about it this way. Although Donald Trump was a one-term president, he was very successful in keeping his legacy alive throughout the federal judiciary. I don't know if folks know this, but during his tenure, him and Mitch McConnell were able to confirm over 200 federal judges. So that's 200 plus people who will have a lifetime appointment on the federal court. I mean, in the Supreme Court, he put three people (laughs) on the bench. And so we all talk a lot about Mitch McConnell and how we all understand how that man's still alive. But at the end of the day, he now has over 200 Mitch McConnellites who will carry on his legacy. So what really Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell and Republicans have been very crystal clear about doing and like laser focus is laying out the part of the federal government that they feel like they have the most control over. And that's the federal judiciary. They've been laser focused for multiple decades. And I think that now as Democrats and those of us on the left and as progressives, what we're realizing is, oh my goodness, this is something that we need to be concerned about as well. But we're catching up while Republicans and Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell have been laser focused for years. I feel like we're always a little reactionary instead of proactive, but especially in this case, because as you said, and I think it's important for the listeners to know and understand that this has been part of the plan for the GOP for decades. And we are seeing this plan come into fruition. And I would just love for you to remind everyone what McConnell did with Merrick Garland and Neil Gorsuch. Oh, absolutely. So when President Obama was in the last year of his term, he was like, I have an opportunity to put a Supreme Court justice on. We're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. But Mitch McConnell said, no. (laughs) He said, I'm not doing it. The next justice could fundamentally alter the direction of the Supreme Court and have a profound impact on our country. So of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. It is the president's constitutional right to nominate a Supreme Court justice, and it is the Senate's constitutional right to act as a check on a president and withhold its consent. What he did was totally legal. He decided that he was going to make the rules up as he goes along. But he definitely said, I'm not going to allow this president his rightful place of putting in a justice. I'm going to wait. So he waited almost 16 months There were 16 months between the passing of Scalia to 
the appointment of Gorsuch. We just totally forgot about that. And Mitch McConnell just decided to ram it through. And I think that's important for folks to understand about why the federal courts are so important to Republicans. People should remember, you probably remember, I remember, this was not popular with the American people. The American people said, you absolutely need to let President Obama appoint the next Supreme Court justice. The Republicans didn't care about what was popular. They cared about keeping power. And so the courts for them are their way of keeping a stronghold on our democracy and on keeping a stronghold on their power. And, you know, a conservative ideology that I think if 2020 was any reflection of where the American people are, it's that they are in favor of more progressive policy, obviously, with the turnout and how large of a number Biden won by. They saw what was going on and they voted against that. So the fact that Trump and McConnell and the GOP have all of these judges now in place. And by the way, I just want to remind everybody that McConnell also rushed through Amy Coney Barrett when a big majority of mail-in votes were already cast and ballots were cast. And to him, that was totally fine, even though the American people were like, wait a minute, you know what, maybe this isn't fair. Since people already voted, maybe you don't get to say, you know, since we're in the middle of an election, maybe you don't get to appoint someone now. And they did it anyway. So now we were in the situation. And not that that's to say that the courts were in great shape before Trump, but is there a drastic difference before and after Trump? I'm not a historian on that, but I would say just anecdotally, what we're seeing is a quicker decline in our democracy, like a chipping away. The Trump judges are the ones who have been fighting us on immigration. They've been fighting us on environmental justice. They're fighting us on reproductive justice. They're fighting us on labor rights. I'll give you another example. So John Roberts was appointed before Donald Trump, right? However, John Roberts has spent his whole professional career dismantling the Voting Rights Act. So he was able to do that in 2016. But here we are now in this new Trump era of judges, what he was able to dismantle, we are seeing it throughout this past election. The Supreme Court decided that during a global pandemic that people still need to go vote in person. That was a decision by this conservative bench. This same conservative bench is from the lower course to the top have told us that it's okay to keep babies in cages. They're telling us that environmental issues, you can't really sue an oil company for doing something. We're talking about workers' rights. There's been a real chip away of that during this era. But I think the other thing that folks should really understand is like, just because Donald Trump is out of office, those judges will still remain. So the same way that we've seen all this wave of voter suppression laws happening at state levels, don't be surprised. If those get passed or they don't get passed, that the federal judges that Donald Trump appointed will have their say. They will get a say in what happens. In his first two and a half years in office, Donald Trump has struggled to get things done. Many of his plans have been blocked by the courts. He hasn't been able to build his wall or put a citizenship question on the census. But there is one thing Trump has done exceptionally well, remaking the federal judiciary. Since he's taken office, Trump has nominated 191 so-called Article III judges who are appointed for life. 144 of these nominees have been confirmed. That's over 50 more judges than Barack Obama had confirmed at this point in his presidency. So the difference, I really would say, is that 
we are doing amazing work on the ground. People worked so hard to win in 2020 from the top of the ticket to the bottom of the ticket for progressive ideas and policies. But the way that our courts are currently structured now, all of our fights could be for naught right? If you think that a lower court judge could just erase all the good work we're doing because they don't interpret the law the way that we know that they could and that they should, that's the difference. I think that folks should think about in this post-Trump judicial world, what's the work that you're doing now? How will that court work to dismantle that work? And that's what they're all about. years ago, the right could not stop screaming, activist judges, right? Every time there was a nominee from President Obama or they lost in court, didn't they just spend four years stocking the court with activist judges? Yes. And four years before that and four years before that and four years before that. I don't think that any of your listeners watch Fox News because they think it's a good source of news. But say they're watching Fox News right now. Fox News has spent a significant amount of time talking about why we should not reform the Supreme Court. They call it court packing. They call it about liberals trying to take over our courts. To me, that means we're doing the right thing. That means that we're playing in their field because that's where they feel their power is at. So yes, they're going to talk about us having activist judges, but they literally have activist judges. Like Amy Coney Barrett, Full stop. When we talk about these activist conservative judges, the most recent judge on the bench, Amy Coney Barrett, is exactly textbook that. It's such a nightmare because it's literally everything as activists and advocates, everything that we said was going to happen between Kavanaugh and Barrett. We're seeing it. We're seeing it come to life right now. So let's go back a little bit to the Supreme Court. Has it always been nine judges? It has not. A little bit of trivia fact for folks listening at home. The Supreme Court has changed seats seven times. You don't need a constitutional change to add seats to the Supreme Court. The founding fathers actually thought that the court should have a lot more kind of flexibility because of their role. The court's supposed to interpret our law. So we need to have some flexibility in who we put on that bench. So the last time we actually added seats to the Supreme Court was during the Civil War. And the reason we did that was because we did not want white supremacists trying to dictate <laughs> the direction of our country. There's been changes in the courts. It's been around our democracy and what our democracy looks like and how we need to really adapt to that. So no, to your point, our Supreme Court has not always been nine folks. And the Constitution says nothing about the size of the Supreme Court? Not a thing. It's silent on that. So often people will say, well, we can't do anything about that because it's a constitutional amendment. That's not true. You don't need a constitutional amendment to add seats to the Supreme Court. Let's talk about some of the remedies. But first, can you explain to my listeners the difference between court packing and court stacking? Court packing and court stacking. Ooh. I think that's a lot of rhetoric in a sense. I think that when we were talking in 2020, when Amy Coney Barrett got onto the bench, I think progressives were like, well, what do we do? 
We need to add seats to the courts. And then Mitch McConnell said, well, I don't believe in court packing. And court packing is what Republicans have absolutely done. They've packed the courts with their ideologues. And what we're saying, if it's court stacking, if that's the case, then it's about let's add up and put the right amount of folks in our court to bring back a balance. And also, if we're being very real, they stole two seats from the American people. So the least that they could do is give us two more. By adding a 13 seats total, that's also reflective of the number of lower courts, like at the circuit courts. So in history, the Supreme Supreme Court has the same number of justices as our lower courts and our circuit courts. So having 13 Supreme Court justices actually follows the same kind of theory and logic and will reflect what our lower courts look like as well. Why is adding four justices the right number? Instead of 20? <laughs> Instead of anything. It seems like we're advocating for four added seats. And I'm just curious as to why that is. It really goes back to the reflection of what the lower courts look like. Since there's 13 circuit court judges, we're saying add to this to by adding these four additional seats. But it's also about thinking, like I said, if we're thinking about this politically, if the American people lost two seats, the least you can do is give us those two seats. But just really technically, it's because we wanted to reflect the lower court number of seats. And that's what we've done in history as well. So there's been a precedent set for that. And so we're going to continue that precedent. And beyond the Supreme Court, what do you think about other reforms that we need to do to make the way we appoint judges and the way they serve better for the American people? I think that's an excellent question. I think that court expansion is the topic that gets a lot of the air. We talk about that because it's so visual about how many justices we actually have. But we also need to think about some other reform for our federal judiciary. I don't know if folks know this, but there is no binding code of ethics for federal judges. I feel like if you work in any other job that has this type of level of importance, there should be some type of binding code of ethics. That's how we get folks like Brett Kavanaugh. We also need to think about how do we ensure term limits to our federal judiciary? These are lifetime appointments. And so this means that people, and we've unfortunately seen this, will die in their seats. And we're not ageist at all. That's not what this is about, but this is about the ability and the agility of our democracy. And so by having term limits into our judiciary, that allows for us to really continue to feed into our democracy, bring new fresh light and energy, and also takes away some of the political minutia and the political weight that comes with being a federal judiciary judge. It's absolute time for the court to have term limits. It is the only court in the world of democracy similar to ours that don't have what I call a single lengthy term, either a number of years or age. So England, Canada, Israel, Australia, wherever you want to look, Germany, France, everybody has a single lengthy term. Because you're appointed by a senator. So once you get appointed, then you're there forever. It doesn't matter what they do because there's no code of conduct or code of ethics and there's no limits on their term. So then you just get there and do whatever you want to do and there's no accountability. Yeah, and it can go on and on. Term limits to me seems to be an important part of this reform that we need to really take a close look at because the rigidity of the court does not help us. Things change. And we hear so much about the Constitution being a, a living, breathing entity, right? Not this old relic that stays to only the way the framers wanted it to stay. I think we need to be able to change things and to adapt. But the problems are so different now than they were even just 20 or 30 years ago. Absolutely. So here's the big question, Tamara. Are you ready? Um, I'll see. We'll see. <laughs> The Senate is really closely divided. So do you think that we would be able to make any of these changes? 
I think that's an excellent question. I think that is the question that folks are thinking about. What's the viability of this, right? It sounds good. It's timely. It's important. We should do it. I would say probably two, three years ago, we would have been like, girl, no. But we're in a different political moment. I think what's really important about expanding seats in the court, even with the legislation that's been recently dropped earlier this year, is that it's been chaired or co-sponsored, excuse me, by key leadership in the House on the Judiciary Committee. So this is about the leadership of the House, who is thinking almost exclusively about our court's right? And our judiciary saying, this is a real issue and we have a solution for it. So what's going to make it happen is that we have to push our Democrat friends on the House and the Senate to get on board. We know it's divided. So that means we need every single Democrat to support this legislation. And I think to the point around why they need to support it is that we know what's under attack. If we were to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, if we're supposed to pass D.C. statehood, if we're supposed to pass any kind of comprehensive Green New Deal or immigration reform or paid sick leave, think about all the things we're organizing and fighting for right now. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the 6-3 Supreme Court is going to uphold it? No. So if you're a leader who is championing for these things, you need to look at the playing field and say, I know what I need to do. By the way, championing these things that the American people voted for. Say that. Absolutely. That's the thing that fires me up is this is what the American people voted for. And the Democratic Party has got to do what the American people expect it to do. Otherwise, what the fuck are we fighting for? That's absolutely right. And then the fact is, is that the reason that the Republicans are so concerned about the courts and Democrats have not been is because Republicans do things that aren't popular. Republicans legislate policies that we don't want. The American people don't want the things that the Republicans say that they want to give us. So if you give us things that we don't want, then you put your friends on the bench to uphold the things that we don't want. That's a win. But for Democrats, we have to understand, like we as the progressives, as left in this country, this is an ecosystem. Our courts and our Congress are a part of the same ecosystem. They work hand in hand. But do you think it should be? Yes, I think we need a checks and balance. But the reason it doesn't work that way is because they've been able to pack one part of it. The judiciary is the least democratic body in the branches of government. And when I say that, we don't vote for our justices. They're appointed. But we vote for the people who appoint them. And we're not voting for Republicans. The people did not vote for Donald Trump. We did not win the popular vote. For two elections. And the way U.S. presidential politics works means that the country can end up with a president the vast majority of people didn't vote for, but who still gets to nominate judges. Take President Donald Trump. Loses a popular vote by a margin of three million, ends up nominating three justices in four years. In fact, with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court ended up with a 6-3 conservative majority. Even though Republicans have lost a popular vote in six of the past seven presidential elections before 2020. But what happens is with gerrymandering through bad voter suppression policies that the Supreme Court has upheld, Donald Trump becomes our president. And then he appoints three more of his friends to the Supreme Court and 190 plus more in the lower courts. We need to push our Democrat leaders to say, you know what, we fought in 2020 to get you into office because we need these things. We can't wait. We can't wait. So you can pass them, but you also need to make sure that our federal judiciary is configured in a way, which you can do to ensure that our wins and our democracy are protected. 
It's a lot. I got to tell you, I've gotten goosebumps. My neck hurts from this conversation. It feels <laughs> overwhelming. No, you're so incredible and you say it in a way that I can grasp it. So hopefully the listeners will also be understanding it better. But do you think that maybe some non-political entity other than the president and Senate should be responsible for evaluating judges? So you mean like a commission of some sort? Yeah, just some non-political entity. I think that that's why we want term limits and a code of ethics, to your point. We don't have any entity that really kind of ensures that our judges are doing the right things. A few years ago, people wanted to impeach Brett Kavanaugh, not only just because of his viable sexual assault claims, but because there's a lot of weird stuff in that man's background that he can't answer for. Yeah. He had all this debt. Where'd your debt go, Brett? Yeah, who paid off your <laughs> right? debt? Who's paying your debt? So now you're a Supreme Court justice and we don't know who paid off your debt. We don't know who's whispering in your ears. So I understand this inclination about we should have this external body, which I think is fair. Like our society, our government can feel like it can't checks and balance itself, but there's a missing piece. And if we add this additional piece around term limits and a code of ethics, that might create some more accountability and allow even us as the American people a real recourse in when it comes to dealing with our federal judges. I think the Federalist Society, for those that don't know, they are basically the short list that the GOP always goes by in order to appoint federal judges is basically put together by the Federalist Society. I think they're just as dangerous as the NRA. And I think we need to look at them as that. And much like we were able to chip away the power of the gun lobby, I feel like if we chip away at the Federalist Society and we're able to really get to the bottom of, because we don't know, what if the NRA paid off Kavanaugh's? That's right. Right? We don't know. From the talking points from the right, as you know all of them, how do you answer to this one? What do you say to people who claim the Democrats are just trying to take control of the court? I would say, yeah. <laughs> right. The first misnomer is that our federal courts are apolitical. They're not. But they're supposed to be, right? Well, they can't be. Because America is not apolitical. I understand the jest, right? I understand it's because justice is blind. That's the piece about it. But that blindness comes because you've had lived experiences that help you understand what it means to walk through this country and the body that you're in. So our federal judges are appointed by a party or certain individuals. They're going to have a political leaning. Though the question becomes, can they separate that political leaning from doing the actual work? And they can. We've seen it. There's studies that talk from like Obama judges to Trump judges on how they judge. So, for instance, we've seen that like Obama judges and Trump judges seem to often side with corporate interests more than they deal with public interest. That's not about political party. That's about ideology and just how people interpret the law. So the courts are political. And the reason I would say, yes, Democrats want to take control of the courts back or provide, not even take control, but provide some kind of balance back to our courts is because we have too many things at stake. Too many of us, our existence in this country is political and tenuous. As a Black woman, <laughs> it's an amendment 
is the reason that I can do what I can do. As women, there's amendments. We've had to fight. Our existence is political. There's not even an amendment for women. We still can't get the ERA passed. And if you get it passed in this current configuration of the courts, that's a political thing. And so I think that Republicans are always going to say that. And I'm going to say, okay, yeah, we're just trying to add balance back from your 40 years of packing the courts. Adding four seats is just a drop in the bucket because it's not just about the seats to the point, right? It's about we need term limits. We need a code of ethics. Another thing that we don't talk about our courts and how they're political or not political or political is that our lower courts are the pipeline into the Supreme Court. And our lower courts need to have more diverse judges. President Biden today launched his effort to reshape the federal judiciary, announcing a diverse list of judicial nominees with a wide range of experience. This is also a groundbreaking slate in many ways. It includes four nominees who have served as public defenders, four who are members of the AAPI community, a nominee who, if confirmed, would be the first Muslim American federal judge in history. Nine of the 11 nominees are women. Like I said earlier, professionally diverse as well as demographically diverse. Our country is not one or the other. We're all. And so having a judiciary that really reflects, that goes back to it. Republicans don't care about a judiciary that's reflective of this country. Democrats are. And we're doing the work to make that a reality. But we have to push our friends in Congress to make that a reality as well. Tell us about the Biden Court Commission. It is a commission on the courts. (laughs) And do you think that will be helpful in coming to an understanding on court reform? I think that the commission is a good gesture. It's just too little, too late. We've already had a seat stolen. We've just spent, I don't know, 30 some minutes. How long have you been talking about all these things that we already know need to change in the courts? to make our democracy more robust. The way that this commission is structured now, it doesn't reflect any of that knowledge. What it's really about is like, I call it a book report. We don't really need a book report and we don't need six months for you to give me your book report. We need immediate action now. And the commission is a good gesture, but it's not gonna deliver us the type of change that we need and want. I know a lot of your listeners are probably organizers. And I think one of the first things when you're a baby organizer is that when they put you into a commission, that's how they try to slow you down. Yep. We can't wait. I mean, just this week, the Supreme Court decided that they are going to listen to a case that could really further dismantle Roe v. Wade. Can we wait? That case could be heard before this commission even comes out with a report. So it's a good gesture. But what we really are encouraging our elected leaders, right, our Democrats in the House, is to take the first step, pass the Judiciary Act, so that we can add seats to the court and continue the trajectory to a more robust democracy. Tell my listeners about Demand Justice and how we can support your work. Yeah, awesome. I would love to. So I work for this organization by the name of Demand Justice, and we were founded in 2018 under the premise that the progressive movement has not been thinking about the federal courts. We see all of our wins go down the drains. I used to be a union organizer, and so I understand what it means when They took bargaining rights away from public sector workers. That was a Supreme Court decision, the Janus case. So the man justice is laser focused on structural court reform. We believe that we need to expand the court. 
we believe that we need to have a more professionally diverse bench. And we also need to have term limits and the other things that I discussed. And so what we're doing now is really building the grassroots army of folks around the country who care about our courts, who want to make sure that all the wins that we've been fighting for these past few decades even are preserved. And also we're committed to understanding that our democracy does not stand if our federal judiciary is dismantled, if it continues to be the exclusive playing field of Republicans and conservatives. So if folks are really interested in getting involved with demand justice and the work that we were doing, please check us out online at www.demandjustice.org. Amazing. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that we're doing this work. We're not talking about it. We're doing it. And not just on court reform, but everybody's doing the work right now. I think the Donald Trump years were very dark. But for some of us, that's not when the darkness came. It just got darker. And so now we have a little bit of light. And what I really am talking to partners and friends and colleagues about is that we won and we need to act like we won. And that's what gives me hope. We won. I'm not going to apologize for the hard work. I'm not going to apologize for the folks that we lost. We've lost people. Last year, we lost thousands of Americans because of an ineffective government, but we still won. And so what do we do to honor those that we lost, right? We need to keep acting like we won and make things happen. So that's what gives me hope. Honor them with action. Tamara Brummer, you give me hope. Thank you so much for all that you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. The number nine is not in the United States Constitution. Originally, we only had six Supreme Court justices. We want to begin this debate uh, because of the historically unprecedented actions which the Republicans have taken over the last uh, five years to steal two Supreme Court seats. What do you say to people who say, this is a kind of maximalism that's dangerous and crazy and wild-eyed? Well, I would say that the Republicans just engaged in crazy, wild overreach when uh, Justice Scalia passed away, uh, the Republicans decided they were going to keep the vacancy for 14 months. And then after saying it was a a sacrosanct tradition that there were no confirmations during an election year uh, in 2020, uh, when the late great Justice Ginsburg passed away, a week before the election, the Republicans confirmed Amy Coney Barrett. And so they stole two seats, flat out. It was outrageous. Uh, and it's led to a six to three uh, court, uh, which uh, unfortunately will be in a position on civil rights, on women's right to choose, on environmental issues, on voting rights issues, uh, to now overturn a uh, settled law in our country that has been on the books to protect ordinary Americans for generations. The judiciary is supposed to be above politics. Justice is supposed to be neutral, but that relies on a Senate which puts America above its own power. And since Mitch McConnell has been there, we have not had that Senate. Everything that matters from racial justice and allowing women control over our own bodies to holding those in power accountable when they commit crimes relies on a thoughtful, neutral, competent judicial system led by judges of integrity. The Trump regime set America back decades in its assault on the judiciary. We need to follow in the footsteps of history and fundamentally reform our judicial system so that it lives up to the ideals the framers set for it. 
we need to reject the partisan hacks in the Senate who would gladly do this much harm to America. It matters. It matters for all of us. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.